G'day, James O'Loughlin here. Why, you might ask, are we starting the program with the opening uh, bars of Richard Clapton's Capricorn Dancer? Well, the answer is very simple. He is here and will be talking to us about uh, uh, his life and wonderful music in just a few seconds. Also on the program tonight, someone who has uh, an Australian who has ridden in what might be the world's most unforgiving and brutal horse race across where Mongolia uh, and done very well. Well, also, uh, you know, we want to talk about the NBN and how we should do it and all that sort of stuff in Canada and in South Korea. They're a few years ahead of us. They started before us and they finished before us. So we'll find out how they did it and and whether it is making, the NBN is making all the the world a, a better place in all the ways that it has been promised to here. Stepchildren, are you a, are you a step parent? Were you a, a did you have a step parent? We're going to talk a little bit tonight about about the challenges of step parenting. I suppose the cliche cliche is you're not my father or you're not my mother. But what are the what are the challenges when you start a relationship and there's kids already there and you've sort of got to step into a sort of parental role but sort of not a parental role? So I have a a bit of a chat about that and, of course, an episode of I Don't Get It. Uh, but first... This crazy horse is trying to chase the wind. That is the wonderful voice uh, of Richard Clapton. Richard has written some of the most iconic and great Australian songs. Deep Water, The Best Years of Our Lives, Capricorn Dancer, Girls on the Avenue, the list goes on. He's been in music nearly 50 years. He's just released an autobiography appropriately called the best years of our lives, and he's here. G'day, Richard. Hey, James. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, it's my pleasure. You, I, I guess when you entered the world of... Well, had, did you always love music? When did you first pick up a guitar? When, when was, was, what was the first instrument you played? It would have been guitar, but see, the odd thing that, that's, that's actually not in the book, if you go right back into prehistory, mm. um, I actually started out with the Dave Brubeck Quartet, which Did is you? really weird. Yeah. I'm throwing in all these weird things into my mix recently. Yeah, right. I played in a crowd rock band in Berlin and, and stuff like that. Mm. But this is a really little known fact. And But the thing is that, that it's even got me curious is I started out life obsessed and besotted with jazz musicians. Yeah. And it's odd that I've finally written a book after all this time, yeah. but when I was about – truly, when I was about 11 or 12 – I just couldn't get enough of reading about John Coltrane and Charlie Mingus. I loved all their biographies. I just loved reading about them. Yeah. Admittedly, they were bad boys, and I suppose I ended up being a bad boy as well. <laughs> maybe that was maybe so you that were was the evil attraction. Maybe, yes. yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, so I, I actually started out as a jazzer, and and then from there got into a bit of blues, and then into Smokey Robinson, and Marvin Gaye, and that was that was sort of the evolution. Okay, and then I guess in the in the mid late sixties, you were. I mean, it seems like you had no other thought than that you wanted to make it as a muser. Yeah, it was. Well, it, singularly, it was because of Bob Dylan. Um, I had this epiphany um, after at first being mortified after you know after years, a couple of years of listening to Marvin Gaye and Smokey Robinson. You can imagine the shock when I first heard Dylan's voice. Yeah, but. Um, the the elder brother of my oldest, uh, my best mate at school, 
um, came back from doing postgraduate studies in Brussels and he had five albums by this Bob, Bob Dylan guy. Now, that was the first night I'd also ever had scotch. I was only about 15. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I think it was the second glass of scotch and the song was It's All Over Now, Baby Blue and that's when I had my epiphany and that's when I decided it, I'd, it wasn't so much about being a musician. It was about being a communicator like like Dylan. Like Dylan, So yeah. I'd always loved poetry at school. Yeah. Um, and I just loved the power of of um, of words and, and link, you know, pretty much anything to do with linguistics, pretty much. So if you get what I mean, I didn't really come at it. I came at it more from um, a lyrical background, yeah, yeah rather yeah. than music. And, and Dylan was the person who who sort of communicated to you that songs could actually be about something. They could yes. be poetry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and then I guess you know you you seem to be well. Not a solo performer. You always had a band, but on the other hand, never just a person in a band. It was always the Richard Clapton band. So does that perhaps suggest you love the camaraderie of the band, but maybe you're a bit of a control freak and you want to be the one leading? It, uh, well, a damn good question. Um, I prefer not to think that I'm a control freak. Um, but no, but James, you could be right. I mean, perhaps that, you know, perhaps there is some insidious, sinister <laughs> motivation well, going there, on there. there's lots of stories in the book, aren't there, about... I guess the difficulties of being in the band, you know, of, yeah. of different personalities, whatever, but also lots of stories about the the magic of oh, it too. I know what you're saying. That's a really good point, you know, because I I've been around a lot of bands now. Yeah. In in my my forty years in this biz, and with no offence at all, no offence intended. Yeah. To any of my comrades who are are in bands, um, I would find it really difficult. Yeah. Because yeah, I I am. Um, what what do I um here's my favourite. Yeah, remember Dudley Moore and Arthur. Um I work Friday, Saturday night, have the weekend off. Uh, sorry, I have the rest of the week off and I am my own boss. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well whereas in a band, um I jeez, it's always the five or six of you. you, you yeah, know. got to right. make a lot of decisions We're, we're going to move to the left. Okay, everybody move to the left. Mm. No, no, we're going back to the right. No, we're going, yeah. I don't know. It must be um, awfully strange in that little cocoon yeah, you yeah, call a yeah. band. But there's a lovely story in your book when you were working with In Excess, how you describe how when they got in a room together and just started jamming, because they all knew each other so well, three brothers and a couple others, something really quickly came out of nothing. So I guess that's the other side of it, isn't it? That, that, was, that was, for me, that was a really magical experience because I would have been writing songs, if you include London and Berlin, I was probably be, would have been writing songs for at least 13 or 14 years at that stage. Mm. And to sit in a studio uh, for my first pre-production session to do Enix's second album... Um, I sat there with Andrew Farris and, and he was playing me this sort of riff thing and I was I was getting a bit nervous because I'd never produced before and I thought, gee, it's not really a song though. And then somehow, I guess you'd call it catalysts, but like all this, this song sort of started raining out of the ceiling mm. and I'm just sitting there thinking, how the hell is this happening? Because, yeah. you know, Andrew had this riff thing and then his baby brother Johnny sits down and starts playing this marvellous feel on the drums you know, and then and then Tim Farris starts joining in, and they start jamming on it, and this song just sort of comes together. And I think, Jesus, 
I, I was I was actually gobsmacked. Yeah, yeah, Because I, yeah. I couldn't, you know, I, I have to sit there on my own just sort of, you know, coming up with the whole damn thing by myself. And just to see that, that happening right in front of my ears and eyes was, was marvellous. Talking to Richard Clapton, he's just released an autobiography, The Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, you say that, that uh, I guess, it was it the mid to late 70s, within a few days, was it, you wrote three of your, your greatest songs, Goodbye Tiger, Deep Water and Lucky Country. So you're just describing watching a band, but when you were doing it, did those, you know, some artists talk about discovering songs, some talk about labouring them and, 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 you know, just building them brick by brick. How do you look at it? I think the real truth, I, I would even speak on behalf of other songwriters, it really varies wildly. So some songs, like Goodbye Tiger, the song, was quite stream of consciousness. Yeah. On the other side of that, I am an island, which is not hard rock is not my forte, but I really, I really wanted to write a hard rock song, and I want, wanted to end my live gigs going out with a bang. Yeah. Now, because that's not my forte, I reckon I am an island probably took me close on two months of sitting there. You know, like I come up with this great riff, and then I can't think of anything else. What comes yeah. after that? And honestly, but I was just doggedly determined to make that song work. Yeah, and yeah. and that there's other songs of mine, like there's another one called "The Universal" from the yeah. same album. That that took a long while to write. Whereas other things, like Capricorn Dancer, I think I wrote probably in an hour. Wow, and probably recorded it in in half a day. That what you just played. Yeah, before. yeah, yeah. And is that how does that happen? Do you just find a chord progression or something that feels right and keep going. Well, that's the wonder of it all, isn't it? I don't yeah, know. I yeah. don't know. I mean, sometimes it's just pure stream of consciousness yeah. and it all comes gushing out. Like Goodbye Tiger just came gushing out and it's not really an easy song. It's not even an easy song to play. Mm. But I don't know. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll be really brief about this. I'd been out with some Melbourne Bohemian mates of mine to see Hunter S. Thompson at Sydney Town Hall, and they'd given me a send off to send me off back to Berlin. And we got wildly drunk. Didn't go to bed at all. Yeah. I was poured onto a plane the next morning. Got as far as Frankfurt, then got as far as Berlin, and my German friends were waiting, and they drove me to um, a, a Danish fishing village called Norrenabel. Yeah. And um, I was still hungover by the time I got to... It's the northernmost tip of Denmark. And I was still <laughs> hungover. And I got my guitar out and um, that song just came gushing out. Gushing out. Literally gushing out, yeah. Let's hear a bit of it. Richard Clapton, Goodbye Tiger. Wish everything was back the way When you hear that now, Richard, have you heard it so many times it's it's kind of 
nothing? I mean, not nothing, but you don't feel no. anything? Or do you feel something? No. Does it still take you back then? Or, you or know what? what? This, is the real, this is the real truth. I was sitting here listening to it, and we're in the ABC studios in Ultimo on a yeah. Sunday night, and, it, and yeah. it's, it's always kind of lonesome around these buildings on it Sunday sure night. But, you know, as was said, I've been around a long time. No, I, I actually found felt this giant warm wave of nostalgia. Oh, it was good. like and, and like, no, and I'm singing, you know, you can hear me whisper on the night line. Yeah. And all these these lines, and it actually struck a chord with me. Good. And I wrote the bloody thing. I know, yeah. that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I mean... Yeah. I... <laughs> anyway. But that's, that's interesting, isn't it, how, how some songs, they come and they might be top 40 for mm-hmm. a few weeks and then they're gone forever. Mm-hmm. Some songs, like so many of yours, stick... So vividly, and and yeah. you know, and they're still on high rotation, aren't they? On many radio stations, yeah. Singing. But I, that moment I just had then was quite rare. Yeah, right. I, so I'm answering your question in a weird sort of yeah, way. Yeah. But, but no, I just, I think it's, but it has got to do with being on Sunday night radio. Yeah. In a big, big empty old building, and you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's... The big empty old uh, ABC building, <laughs> and I, I guess you know, as you began to build a reputation with a few albums through the 1970s you became aware of the discrepancy between critical acclaim and and sales and mm. i guess, i guess something that's that's been you know you've had very consistent critical acclaim haven't you through the years yeah. and then sales have gone up and they've gone down and um yeah look the 70s was was really annoying for me because my first album, Prussian Blue, got get, did get great critical acclaim, but it quite simply did not sell. Um, and so Festival Records sort of gave me this ultimatum um, that I either come up with a hit single, like a radio-friendly hit single, mm. which back in those days had to be three minutes or less and, you know, all that palaver. Um, so I spent the it's 70s... It's a bit of pressure, isn't it? It come is, with a yeah. hit signal or a... But my mate Colin uh, Verko, who was the first programmer for Double J, yeah. he and I lived in a house, which is where I wrote Girls on the Avenue. And I actually wrote it under duress f- from Colin. Colin's thing was, look, just, you know, use a bit of rat cum- cunning. Yeah. You know, just uh, you, you can trick these bastards. <laughs> just give them what they want. Yeah. And then, you, you know, you can get on and, and do what you want. So I... I, I for the most of the seventies, I walked this really weird line. It, it was kind of this. So concept. this 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 song, "Girls on the Avenue," this is you deliberately trying to write a hit, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. And it worked. Yeah, and it worked. Yeah, yeah. Even though they put it out on a B side, it still oh, yeah, worked. I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> I went to all that trouble, and and they're going, "Well, no, it's a mess. Oh, well, we don't get it. What is it? Don't you slip Friday night?" Which bit's the chorus? I'm going, well, duh, it's just a song. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, and so it became, it became a hit. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I wonder, did, I mean, did you listen to other hits and think, right, I've got to do that? Or... No, 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 no. No. Look, I, I, because in as much as I have never wanted to be a pop musician, let alone a pop star. Yeah. Um, but you've I've, got to pay the bills. No, not just that. No, I'd go further and say, but I've always really liked pop music. I'm not, yeah. you know, some some sort of pretentious snob that just, you know. Um, but see, when I say pop music, I'm talking about like the Brill Building, Carol King, and you know, all those great people yeah. that came from the Brill Building in New York or the Beach Boys, and um, but even even you know, in recent years, there's a lot of pop music I really admire. But 
I did. I just didn't want. For me, pop music is more of a craft, and and the, the sort of genre that I I adhere to, or, or the you know I aspire to, is it's it's a bit more of an art than a craft. Yeah. You know, in, in other words, you. The sort of songs that I write, you can't just make them happen. A pop song, you can make it happen, like quite mechanically. Right. You know, I, I think as people are, okay. are, are learning nowadays. Right, right, right. And 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 I guess I mean you say in the book that some of you, some of the best songs you think you've written have been in the last few years. Does it frustrate you that it's harder now to get to get airplay for them than when you were younger? It frustrates me, but I won't allow that to cloud my judgment because it, I think I've also fessed up in the book. I did go through a period, a fairly brief period, where I, I just was throwing in the towel. I got mm. just got sick of people. I'd do gigs, some gigs, and I'd go, all right, girls, why don't I just play Girls on the Avenue six times and we'll all go home? How yeah, about that? Yeah. And you can still pay me 30 bucks to get in. Um, and I went through a period of, of, of begrudging Girls on the Avenue a bit. And, and, uh, a, and a lot of successful artists have gone through that period with their, yeah, with their hit yeah. songs, haven't they? But then I, also in the book um, there's an anecdote where I took um, this my recording engineer, Chipper, along to see Bob Dylan. He didn't like Bob Dylan. And the fourth song in was my my the song that where I'd had my epiphany. I didn't recognise it. He was like he was doing the speed metal version. I don't know what it was, <laughs> and I realised it was it's all over now, baby blue. I went out to the bar at the Sydney Antsen, and Chipper came running out and said, well, "What's your problem? You dragged me down here." And I said, "Man, he's just murdered that song. Means so much to me." And and Chipper said, "Well." Mate, I've seen you doing a bossa nova version of Girls in the Avenue. <laughs> How does it feel? How does it feel? <laughs> I said, oh, yes, David, you're right. <laughs> yes, I understand. You've got to keep yeah. it interesting for yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking to Richard Clapton. His autobiography is – well, the first half of, our autobi- of his autobiography because it only goes up to 1990. So perhaps there's another version to come. It's called The Best Years of Our Lives. Um, booze and Drugs, they, they feature heavily – uh, and there seems to be a very strong nexus, doesn't there, between rock and roll music and booze and drugs? Is mm. it is it the only way to survive? Is it something you regret, or is it all a load of good fun? Um, I definitely have no regrets about it. And uh, going back to what I was saying in the early part of the interview, maybe it's a subliminal thing that I got when I was a kid, when I was reading about John Coltrane and, and Charlie Mingus and Yardbird yeah. Parker, who, as we now know, um, had very strong drug drug affiliations, Billy Halliday or whatever. Um, and I think then for my generation, the hippie generation, um, like I've read so many interesting interviews with people like Neil Young and Jody Mitchell and, and especially David Crosby about um, their association with drugs and their mm. experiences with drugs. Um, and I know the, the, Joni Mitchell gave a a really great interview here in Sydney and it was a sort of a, um, yeah, a young uppity sort of journal going, well, um, surely you don't do cocaine anymore. And she said, well, sometimes. And the, and the journal's, you know, sort of horrified. And he said, well, why would you do that? You know, after after all the horror that you, well, see, people perceive it as being, you know, like horror. Mm. But her answer was, was perfect. She just said, because of the chaos it creates in my mind, that's how I write my songs. Mm. And, and I can really, I can understand that and I can understand how it's part of the creative process. And 
I, I think um, in the past, especially the eighties, it was it was part and parcel of 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 the rock scene. Yeah, in Australia, it was just something that everybody did. There was speakeasies all over Sydney that mm. you know, especially in Potts Point and Kings Cross, and all the museums went there. And but how have we've moved on? I I've actually moved on because look, I I think I've written some great songs uh, under the influence, but. In recent years, it doesn't work for me anymore. Mm. You know, I, I can only write sober. Um, you know, I can't. So I don't. I don't know. Maybe I feed off my past melancholia or, or whatever. But mm. I just find. Um, I mean, my last album, Harlequin Nights, was speaking of melancholy because it it was mainly about my divorce. Right. You know, a few years ago. Yep. Um, but that's not something I felt like. You know, I really needed the influence of drugs or booze, you know, to to get to exorcise those demons yeah. and, and and to have that catharsis. I didn't, you know, yeah. So you had um, something, you had yeah. Something else. But look, yeah, I I did it, especially in the eighties, and um, I, I'm not going to apologise for it, or, or nor do I have any regrets, mm. because I, I I also believe in you know, it's a victimless crime sort of situation. It's you know, whatever. Now, are you going to continue to make music? Well, I still am. Good. Um, and on on the box set that Warners have just released, I mean, there's a couple of uh, what we call demos um, of, of new songs that have not yet been released. So I don't know what I don't know what direction it will go because the the the, um, the new world order is especially with music. It's it's um, it's a weird one, really. It, it is. You, you kind of just sort of drip feed. You know, you, you so. Like, look, I've written um, one, some songs with Karen Tolhurst from the Dingoes, you know, and that's kind of this swampy kind of thing. Um, and then I've written with Danny Spencer, who's, who's my, my guitar player in, in my band, and that's more like a Jackson Brownie sort of thing. So I... And I've never been one for thinking, oh, I want to write a reggae album or I want to write a, you know, <laughs> an umpapa, yeah, a, right. a polka Boston album or something. Mm. Yeah, but, you know... So, yeah, I, I don't know how it'll manifest, but, but we'll see. We will see. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming in. Thank the, you. And thank you for, you know, all your wonderful music over the years. The book is called The Best Years of Our Lives by Richard Clapton. It's a really entertaining uh, uh, ride through through his life and through the Australian music scene in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Thanks so much, Richard. Hi, thanks, James. Way back in the 1930s, all those endless parties. 